What are the connections that you could encourage? How could you help people join with each other so they get that experience? Because that's so common to really great teams. Welcome to Create New Futures. Thought-provoking conversations with leaders, experts, and interesting minds. Join us as we explore ideas and reflect on practices that you can use and apply to create and shape the future. With your host, author and strategy consultant, Aviv Shahar. Welcome to Create New Futures and to part two of my conversation with Jeff Bellman. In part one, I've explored with Jeff the consultant's calling and the journey of daring to include and integrate who you are inside your work. Jeff observed that you become stronger and that you are able to create a greater and more sustained impact when you bring who you are to the work you do. In this part two, we explore Jeff's later book, Extraordinary Groups, How Ordinary Teams Achieve Amazing Results. The question the book seeks to answer is, what enables such breakthrough performance to happen? And what are the indicators that can be observed with groups that perform beyond everyone's expectations? Here then is part two of our conversation. The velocity of change and disruption has gone through tremendous acceleration in recent uh, decades. Mm -hmm. In a few aspects, it forces people to perhaps be smarter but in many, many, many areas, it uh, makes us dumber. Mm. And I'm say, curi- say some more about that. What do you mean? <laughs> well, because the velocity and the kind of demand that we face in, in a highly technological world where we often only have the, the time for a quick uh, double-click for a second mm-hmm. and, and a Google search, that in some ways we are becoming more superficial, but I, I do not want to, to paint the question with, and the answer with, with my observation. I'm, I'm curious because you have observed organizations for four or five, perhaps more decades. Mm-hmm. And so how much would you say organizations have changed or not at all? Would you say that the kind of problems and challenges that you found and observed in, in your work with leadership teams in large companies in the 70s and 80s, that, that what you are able to see at this point in, in large organizations, admittedly, you are now, you have retired, you, you're not consulting, as you said, Mm-hmm. currently but you are engaged in conversation with people that do the work yes. how much how much are we seeing the same essentially repeating itself the same kind of challenges or are we seeing some new phenomenon in terms of the the dysfunction and the challenge that organizations are encountering at this time i think that we're seeing what on the surface appears to be challenges like we face in the past, but but the speed of change and organizations and the 24-7 and the global nature of it and, and the uh, being in competition with uh, 
organizations across the world. All of that has uh, changed it markedly. Um, like you were alluding to, the uh, double clicking or the Google search or whatever is, is hardly uh, reflecting on what you're doing. And it discourages uh, the speed of things, the context within which we're working today discourages reflection, discourages stepping back. But another element that I'd add to this is that organizationally, we've not been in this phase for very long. It's been, oh, a couple of decades that we've been working at this speed, and we truly don't know what the hell we're doing right now. The organizations haven't uh, found ways to adapt. We haven't found new forms to allow people to interact well um, using the technology that we have available. Most organizations are still uh, using some form of the old hierarchical and siloed structure that they had in the 60s and 70s. And, and we don't know well what are new forms that serve today, that use the information from all the sources that we've got, that use it well today. And uh, we don't know how to gather information. We know how to deluge people with data, but we don't know how to put that together in as information that's really useful to people. You're it's almost just, really, it's just, it's a mess right now as it ought to be in a way. This is a, this is a transformative time and we don't know what we're transforming to. You're almost describing a, a new species that just emerged from the, so to speak, the ocean and found itself on a new land and, and the species that, that is the, the modern or the postmodern organization that moves at the speed of light uh, internationally mm -hmm. and enjoys real-time data more than it knows how to use and how to apply. And you're saying in, in the development or the evolution of this species, th these are still early days. And, and by design, it needs to be chaotic. <laughs> we, yeah. we need to give it more time. I think that's true. I think it's very uncomfortable. By the way, it's not just for-profit, not-for-profit, large organizations. It's, it's, the, it's government itself. And how does it respond? And how do you respond in an international context when important players in this, they are outside your control and you are outside their control? How do you respond in that setting? We're just, we don't know how to work here. We're, we're learning how. And um, yes, it's going to be messy for a long time. And we're also, at least in the United States, we're coming off of a really successful post-Second World War experience. You know, like the last 50, 60 years, we've had a lot of success. And, we, uh, and we're used to that. We're used to being in control. We're, my clients have built five-year plans that they really thought they were going to follow. They intended to follow. Things moved at a deliberate pace, and they were completely, we were completely unprepared for, for what the world was to bring us. So I don't think we 
I think we should be seeking answers right now, and I don't think we should know answers right now. I, I don't blame us a lot for the frustration that we experience, the confusion that we've got, the not knowing what to do, and that being that ignorance being held by people that are in power and feel like they're supposed to know what to do and should act like they know what to do. I find that inside that, part of what consultants can do and, and what I am called to do is to help people slow the conversation down because it, in, in, in reality, and just as an example, so last week I'm with a team in a three-day strategy offsite, and the first couple, three hours on the first morning is essentially a process, an exercise of acclimatizing people into a different kind or a new kind of conversation mm-hmm. that appears to be slower in nature. But in reality, what people are discovering through the exchange and, and the, the breakout sessions and, and the conversations in twos and threes and fours, that by slowing down the conversation, they're actually accelerating their understanding of each other they're actually accelerating the kind of trust and shared appreciation of the challenges in front of them. Mm-hmm. And in actuality, we are producing a, a better and faster and deeper alignment and commitment to the kind of strategies and activities that we will, we are about to embark on because we have allowed ourselves to slow down. Yes. Yes, and it's a much more, you just experienced in that three days uh, an opportunity that was much more common 20 years ago. More teams were t- and management committees, et cetera, were taking time off-site. I, a lot of my living was made in working in those or gathering 80 people or 400 people uh, to, to work together on things over days. That doesn't happen nearly as much as it used to. So it's a unique opportunity that you probably helped create that allowed this group to decide to do that together and, and to um, shift to this different um, pace and recognize the rewards that can come from it. More of that needs to happen. One of the big things that's lacking in the current environment, not surprising, is reflection people pausing to reflect on themselves or pausing to reflect on, you know, how have we done this and where are we and, and where are we going? Yeah, that's much less common today than it was. A lot of the work I used to do, say, 20 years ago, and even 15 years ago, involved four days type sessions. Mm-hmm. I, I no longer do four days. Mm-hmm. But I, I try very hard to persuade the leadership teams that I work with that we need to have the third morning But because I find that there is a lot that we achieve on the first day when we are able to step into what I call a, a zero-gravity exploration and, and thinking, mm-hmm. step into the future space to explore and imagine the, the future. And then on day two, we converge to agree on the kind of horizon two initiatives and strategies that we must 
commit to to enable the horizon three future that we imagined on the first day and then i still need people in that third, on that third morning for them to crystallize at a personal level the kind of actions and personal commitments and changes and what will they stop doing and what will they start doing to mm-hmm. indeed bring those changes to to life so i i I argue very hard <laughs> yeah. to, to retain the third morning. So often these days sessions are, are two and a half days or three days. And I know that as you're describing, that's the exception. Most times people think that you can actually do in a day or a day and a half what, what you need to devote more time to because you have to step outside of the intensity of managing what I call horizon zero. Yeah, yeah. And it's... a uh good for you and another element of this is uh if doing this as an off-site retreat is uh, so much more impactful than trying to do it while at work so if people if you manage to stretch it into the third day then people get two evenings together and the and the and mornings and breakfasts and meals together and all that well that's an unusual experience uh, for them and there's a lot of richness that can uh, come from that uh, that that they don't get uh, regularly at work you write in the introduction to extraordinary groups how ordinary teams achieve amazing results you write that the three questions that you set out to answer were first why do some groups describe themselves in such exceptional terms while most do not second what do these great groups have in common that sorts them from the rest and third what might be done to create their extraordinary results more often mm-hmm. So, so two questions. First, how did you embark on the, the research? How did you frame the, the body of work that you then codified in the book? And, and also if you can share some of the discoveries that came out of that work. Yeah, I have a good recollection of all of that. I, I felt inclined to write another book, but I lacked energy that I had earlier and access to energy. Uh, since I was retired, I cared less about the book in terms of defining me in the marketplace. Uh, but I wanted to explore groups and teams and committees and small groups. You figure 10 or less people, generally. I wanted to explore those in ways that in previous books I explored consulting and organizations and life. So. Um, since I la- there was something I noticed that I lacked, I looked around for who's somebody that has a lot of this energy and has some success in writing. What do you know? I didn't have to look far uh, before deciding to ask Kathleen Ryan, a friend who'd already written a couple of books. I asked Kathleen uh, to explore this area with me. And so something that she brought to it that was different from what I would have brought it left to my own devices and had the energy to do it is she's much more extroverted than I am. So immediately to exaggerate, exaggerate each of us immediately, Kathleen was off 
collecting information from people on teams, asking them to think about when was a really, tell me about a really great team that you were on and what made it that way. Me, I would have gone into a closet and started writing about teams, my own ideas about it immediately if it hadn't been for Kathy. So we decided uh, to interview people from who'd been on extraordinary teams that were notable in, in their life and uh, career experience. And we decided on a common format uh, so that our interview results could be brought together well. Let's see, there was another point I was going, oh yes, we decided we're going to learn uh, what people say about being on great teams. We're not going to talk with people about problems the team have, what, why don't teams work? No, let's learn from teams that really work. So we, we proceeded to interview people from 60 teams, a wide array of teams from the academic world, from the healthcare world, from the corporate world, from the volunteer world. Yeah, people of all different kinds of experience. Our thesis was that if you gathered these people in a gymnasium and you asked them to sort out what made teams great, they would come to agreement that um, there are some things that make teams great regardless of what their uh, the skills of their participants, the technical skills of their participants, regardless of their purpose. That was the thesis that we had, and it was borne out in the field study uh, that we did. And, and that led to the definition of those six elements that you combine in, in the model that you call the, the group needs model. Yeah, it did. We worked, that took a long time to evolve. It took a couple of years, actually, for the six elements to emerge. And uh, for people listening, uh, quickly, the six are needs that we feel people have, that needs that are met in a small group setting, needs that people are trying to meet. And as I review these six with you, don't worry so much whether they're correct or not. Instead, think about whether this is useful like whether it would be useful for your team to approach itself like people on this team really need these six things. So here are the six. First, individuals need acceptance for who they are right now. And they're seeking acceptance. That's one of the things they're looking for as they join a group. They also need to know that this is a place where they can grow, where they can reach toward their uh, potential. So that's two aspects that are specifically related to an individual coming into a team. Then within the team itself, team members need uh, to, be, to feel joined with other members of the team. They need to feel a bond with those other members in, in a kind of socially, and they know, need to know what their role is within the team and feel bonded, joined with them. And, and that team... And they and that team need a sense of their larger purpose. So for the team, there's the sense of bonding with others here and joined in a larger, higher purpose. Then that team, as it works in the larger environment that it's a part of, that larger world that it's a part of, it needs to have first a clarity 
about the reality. What is this world we're dealing with? We need to know that. If we don't understand what the world is like, how in the hell can we deal with it? And the other thing that they need to know is that they can have an impact on that world, that as a team, they can have an impact. So as an individual, I want to know that I'm accepted and that um, my potential could be realized here. As an individual, I want to be joined with other members, bond with other members in the team as we reach for higher purpose. And I want to know that that higher purpose, it serves the world, that we can change the world in some way, impact that world, and that we have a good sense of the reality of the world we're dealing with. So those are the six things that we came up with. You are, des um, you are describing three pairs in each of which the individual, the group, and, and the world, there is, the pairing is, the first need it relates to the current state, and the, the pair of that is to do with the future state. So there is a healthy tension from acceptance of self to the realization of one's potential. Good, great. And that's, that's the easiest one of you to, to talk about because people, people know this is who I am and this is who I want to be. There's that tension right there. We deal with that as a positive tension, as one, as one that, as an important part of the dynamic. And as you point out, there's the current state and the future possibility with both the individual, the team, and in the world. Yes. And your conclusion and discovery that you are framing in the book was that exceptional experiences can be thoughtfully nurtured and intentionally encouraged and those discoveries and what a wonderful <laughs> decision to to research the success and and the peak experiences of people instead of their problems i mean right there is is a great decision if, if everybody focused a little more on learning from the peak experiences we'll have mm. more peak experiences in in this world yeah yeah and and our early from earlier interviews it was demonstrated that this was useful we found that people um found it relatively easy to tell stories about or talk about what went on with the team what did we do with each other they also found it relatively easy to talk about how they felt as a result of that what they found difficult to describe was not what they did, but why they did it. You know, when somebody talks about a great experience that, that the team had and they worked so well together in this meeting, and then you ask them, well, why did you do that? Why, why did you? Well, because, because what? I mean, what motivated you? What need did you have? What urge did you have that caused you to take those actions? It's relatively easy to isolate actions that um, meet needs, but it's harder to get people to identify what the needs are that are being met. We are more sapient about what we do than the reasons that caused us to do what we do. And, and most people do not necessarily operate with the degree of self-awareness and self-insight that you were inquiring about. My guess is in, in your research and your work, you offered people language 
and insight about their experiences. Yeah, and, and during the interviews, we didn't do that. Uh, we just gathered the stories and then we looked back on it and, and noticed the areas where people more, not uniformly, but where more people were less articulate. And a good example is that came up often is why do you know why did your team work together so well? You know, what what were things that you were in pursuit of? And people would say, I don't know, it's just magic. There was a chemistry in the group. It just felt right. We loved each other. Okay. I can't be helpful. I can't go on to another group and say, do magic. Right. Do chemistry, you know. Right. So, um, yeah, so we had to get beneath the magical expression. As much as we respected it, tied to what you said a moment ago, we recognized how many people weren't articulate about why they were doing it. And then, so we decided eventually this is a place we could make a real contribution. We could interpret the data and boldly, uh, maybe not entirely correctly even, but boldly make statements about these are the needs that people are trying to meet. So look at your group through this lens. Uh, how much do, does this individual want to join with others here? How many people here, who are the people that really want to change the world? What could you do to deal with them? Um, how do you accept people? What are the actions you could take that indicate you accept people for who they are right now? Yeah, so that's the place where we could be of service. So the first effort was to collect the data. The second effort was to translate and offer some bold framing to the mm -hmm. data in, in the six uh, needs model that you developed. And I imagine the, the third challenge is in how do you then you apply this insight to produce new results? And yeah. which, leads yeah. to, which leads to my next question there, because so in, in my work, I've attempted to push the envelope mm -hmm. and to test if I, may to, if I may be able to go beyond even intentionally encouraging and play a bit with the idea of intentionally choreographing. Mm. It, it's a little overt and I'm curious if you found that people were able to take this framing that you offered and be more deliberate in the way they design an experience, in, in the way they, they choreograph or curate mm -hmm. the, the kind of conversations that they develop to indeed create exceptional and transformative experiences mm -hmm. and escape the, that, that definition that you said, well, it, the magic is either there or not, because it's mm -hmm. not very helpful if, if it's purely dependent on magic that will turn up one day or not. Yeah. I think similar to you, what those of us that are involved in this, uh, what we've done is we do, we are intentionally kind of leading and, and, and say, uh, we review the research and all that and say, and here are the needs that we've, that we've discovered. And, and then we um, help people understand those needs more deeply, help them look at themselves in relation to them, look at the group uh, present with regard to them. And then ask through activities, ask questions about, you know, what would you do in a team if you saw 
an individual that's looking for acceptance by other team members, uh, what kinds of things could you do? You know, give us examples of behavior. Or if you wanted to bond with other team members, uh, or you wanted to encourage that as a team member or the leader of a team, what are the connections that you could encourage? How could you help people join with each other so they get that experience? Because that's so common to really great teams. And how could you check out the amount, the difference that people want to make in the world? How, how could you find out about that? What kinds of discussions could you promote? So we lead people through a structure that causes them to uh, consider the needs in the context of the team that they're working with right now. And I discovered, Jeff, that because we are wired differently, different people will come into those realizations in different ways. Mm -hmm. My experience is that some are able to first internalize the perception and the insight, and that will then shape a new experience for them. And then you have those in the groups that need to actually have the new experience, and then they need to reverse engineer the experience mm -hmm. to, to explicitly articulate the kind of insight and perception such that it becomes a repeatable behavior and perhaps an experience that they can recreate. My guess is the structure that you're offering is something that accommodates those different inclinations. Yeah, that's, needs. that's the hope. Um, yeah, and that we, we try to pay it, I say we because it's not just me, in fact it's primarily these five people out there in the world doing this stuff all the time, where I, I help them think about it and, uh, rather than out there doing it with them. Uh, but we try to recognize the different learning styles that people bring to it and know that Partly we know this through the field study we did ahead of time, that people often have difficulty talking about this realm of, of whys, the deeper needs that motivate them. Um, yeah, we've got tons of modules that we've prepared and, and use or develop new ones according to the challenges that are before us with this particular group. Another thing that we've done that people connect with uh, readily is that early in the book, there's a, we identify some indicators of you know behavior that we see in, in groups or that people talked about in their stories about extraordinary groups. Uh, we see indicators that um, this is a highly effective team. And there were eight of them identified in the book. And the, the labels on those eight points are compelling purpose, that's so evident as you watch teams, shared leadership, it's not held by just one person, in fact everybody in some way feels a leader, just enough structure, they, they bring, they don't, they are not a slave to structures, they use structure as appropriate to get things done and change it if it doesn't work. Full engagement, you look across the team and everybody's a part of this. They, the embracing differences, they in highly effective, extraordinary teams, they see differences and conflict as a creative point, a potential creative point. That difference could lead us to something new. Unexpected learning, they are surprised individually and collectively 
what they're learning from what they're doing. The seventh one is strengthen relationships. People develop relationships that often go beyond the team, but certainly are they have a greater respect for each other, loyalty, loyalty to each other. They know each other. They have each other's backs. And great results. These teams share uh, results that tangible and intangible results that are wonderful and that they agree upon. So people find it easy to talk into in terms of those eight performance indicators. They find it easier to talk about those than they do to talk about the needs that lie behind those indicators. Right. So often in a often in a workshop setting, we'll introduce what's easier, more familiar to them first, the eight indicators, and then get behind those indicators into the deeper whys. Right. And we will link in the show notes the link to your book. And so obviously people can read more uh, when they, they get the, the copy. We could easily spend a whole new, uh, another hour just on these eight to unpack, right. to, to right. unpack each one of these and, and talk about what does it mean shared leadership and, and mm-hmm. how, how do we exhibit and build and what are the practices that enable the kind of distributed, I call this distributed leadership Mm-hmm. that enable teams to produce the, the kind of sense that we have that shared purpose. We, we're actually co-creating the future of that endeavor together. We are therefore invested in it. And indeed, we will enjoy the rewards and, and the results that we are producing together. Mm-hmm. So one salient feature, as I listen to what you're describing, is how transformational these experiences are when when people get to participate in groups and teams and organizations mm-hmm. that they would describe as as extraordinary and and i believe based on my experience and my observation that transformation is indeed a boundary redefining experience that that mm-hmm. what what happens when we partake when we are involved in a transformative experience, that it redefines our personal, our interpersonal and intergroup boundaries. And and that is really the the meaning of why we would say that an experience is transformative because we come out of that experience with a new topography of meaning of the world around us. And And as I listen to those eight indicators, they are each perhaps a, a lever or, or a, yes, a lever that reshapes in some way the kind of topography of experience and topography of meaning that we create in our minds based on, on our experiences. Yes. And they, um, that transformation is more about seeing than it is about doing. It's more about perspective than it is about skill. It's about a guy who suddenly gets it about thinking in a distributed leadership fashion where he recognizes his responsibility in that today and he didn't recognize that yesterday. And, it, and he hasn't felt that 
he hasn't been ready to transform his thinking on that until now in this particular team where that was encouraged. Yeah, so that's, um, yeah, the world looks different when you've been transformed. That fits with what you were saying a few moments ago. Seeing, it's, it's, uh, it's fascinating how you juxtapose seeing and doing. Often people will juxtapose being and doing. There is a, there is a heightened significance and, and meaning in what you frame as seeing because what you're describing is something has happened that enabled the person to see what was perhaps there before, but they could not see before. Mm -hmm. And because they can now see a whole new reality, they are changed on the inside. And because they are changed on the inside, in most circumstances, they will able to, to act and do what they couldn't do before because the, the new seeing in that guides both the being and the doing. So that's a beautiful uh, framing. Yeah, isn't that? Yeah, I agree. I agree. And, it's, and they take that seeing into their future. Right. And like, I can remember interviewing one guy who was, when I asked him about, you know, think back, uh, think about a team that you're involved in that was, you know, especially effective in fact, you know, really extraordinary in your experience. And, you know, and he reached back 20 years uh, to describe a team like this. And he began to talk about it. He talked at length about it. Our interview was at least two hours long. He talked at length about it and got emotional as he talked about that team of 20 years ago because that was where he caught on. That's where he got it. And that's the team that he brings forward to today as he looks at teams. That's the team he compares against. That's the team that lets him know this is possible and it could be possible here. So he thinks back to that team in today's work. So there are two things in, in this story. First is, again, the profound insight about seeing. I mean, we use the term vision, and we forget that vision comes from the idea of seeing something. We, in, in today's world, often people think about vision as a, as a PowerPoint slide that, that has some fancy words, but in actuality, we are describing if a vision is effective, and I always give the example that the best case example for, for a vision is, is John F. Kennedy saying we will land a man on the moon before the end of the, the decade, and why that was effective is because everybody could actually visualize mm -hmm. it. So a vision only truly works when we can visualize it, when we can see it. Mm -hmm. in, in the case that you are describing, it highlights the significance, the tremendous significance of peak experiences. Because in that person that you're describing, one peak experience 20 years ago becomes like, like a North Star Mm -hmm. They forever redirect themselves to because of how they experienced and what they felt and what that enabled for that person and for everybody else involved and that, therefore the results that could be produced through that. And because they have the, the inner, outer memory, the muscle memory of that experience, it affords them the, 
the impetus and the mechanism to, to work hard to recreate and emulate the experience. That's why as consultants, as leaders, it is so critical that we work to choreograph and facilitate those peak experiences because they help people then go back to their life and, and sometime five and 10 and 15 and 20 years later, go mm -hmm. about the business of recreating a new peak experience with a whole mm -hmm. new team. Yeah, yeah. And, I've, and through time, as I've evolved from being primarily a trainer to being primarily a consultant, well, I too gradually let go of my intense focus on knowledge, um, skills, and feelings, and begin to focus more on, on seeing, on perspective, altering people's perspective on that, on their world, and helping them alter that. Because I do, as you're just describing, I know that they can carry that forward. And uh, I also knew that I had an exaggerated sense of, of skills. Often people are looking for or receptive to a new situation that calls forth skills that they haven't been able to use before. So how do you set up, like in extraordinary groups, how do you set up a group that calls people forth? Now, of course, the idea of seeing also has a, a spiritual slash religious connotation in, in, in some settings where in, in, in certain circumstances, the idea of conversion will be associated with new way of seeing the world. So I'm, I'm, I'm using this to, to sneak in my next question and, and ask you, if I may, mm -hmm. in, in what way would you... In, in what way the spiritual dimension, what part did it play in and is playing and has played in your work and in your life and how has it informed the kind of work you, you are engaged in in the consulting arena? Yeah, good. Um, first, I often over the years in working with other consultants and talking to them over a beer at night or whatever about their work, they often, and we often allude to a spiritual dimension of it. Yeah, like I've heard consultants speak in terms of uh, my clients or my congregation, or, uh, or I have uh, priestly duties or, you know, that kind of thing. I've had a fascination with the spiritual side of my life since probably high school and uh, and when I, was, uh, when I was in undergraduate school, I, uh, with the help of others, I converted to Catholicism uh, from, from kind, of be, kind of being a Protestant, but never attending church really regularly. But I pursued that conversion really well, religiously. Um, I learned, uh, learned a lot about um, the church and what it offered. I was attracted to it because it's so huge and has been around a long time and is so screwed up. All of that really attracted me. So it's, uh, it's the darker side of the church was as attractive as the lighter, more enlightened side of the church. I think that's because of the darker side of me and the more enlightened side of me. Eventually, after, you know, maybe 
12 years in the church, I, I let go of that structure and never and didn't go to church any longer. I didn't feel the need to do that, uh, but, but still felt the strong spiritual side of, uh, of my life. And uh, without the support of uh, an organized religion, one of my in, most influential teachers still uh, is a, a guy that, that I've only read, uh, a, a Jesuit priest by the name of Teilhard de Chardin, wrote, among other things, The Phenomenon of Man. And, uh, yeah, I read a number of Teilhard's work, and, uh, and he was, his thinking about the universe was influential in my thinking about the universe and about this world within it and my contribution to it. So, um, yeah, there's definitely a spiritual element for me. Uh, I'm not holding people up against any particular religion. I want, I'm curious about whether there's a spiritual element to their lives. That doesn't mean I ask questions about it. It's more has to do with my observations of them and whether there's, they are acting as if there is something larger here than the work that's in front of us. Right, and you have journeyed on to find the, the universal church inside your heart and inside your practice and, and, and process mm -hmm. rather than needing to have the, the institutional structure outside of you. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I have once years ago, perhaps 20 years ago, I was on a flight from Milan to Detroit sitting next to, I discovered a Jesuit uh, priest from uh, Uganda. Mm. And he was traveling to the US and uh, the, the entire, it was, a, it was a night flight and the entire airplane went to sleep on this, uh, whatever it was, like eight hours, seven, eight hours flight. And we were engaged in the most intimate and profound conversation for, for perhaps uh, five or six hours be before we both wow. uh, each, uh, went to sleep. But I remember distinctly asking him about his experience because he had the, the fortune of working for some time closely, or at least experienced some interaction with the late Pope John Paul II. Mm. And he explained to me that in, in reality, because I asked him about his experience with the Holy Spirit, and he said, you have to understand that the Vatican, and again, I'm, I'm not saying anything blasphemous, I'm just uh, mm -hmm. quoting what he was sharing with me, that in his point of view, the Vatican was a, more of a corporate headquarter. Mm -hmm. and that he personally experienced the Holy Spirit in a, in a more profound and tangible way in some of the most deserted, makeshift kind of experiences in the middle of nowhere in, in Uganda, perhaps where the need was more urgent. And it, it taught me a, a lesson about that and, and certainly how he was perceiving his faith and, and his experience. And of all things, he was traveling to, to the U.S. to spend three months in um, some kind of a exorcism course. And we chatted, ah. we chatted about that too. 
and um, about the challenges of, of living a celibate life because there was such a profound intimacy and trust that was cultivated in that conversation. And I felt that I could dare ask him. And he said, look, it's a difficult decision, uh, but it's a decision that I've made and I'm living by it. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I've experienced with this uh, Jesuit priest was one of the finest qualities of, of kindness mm-hmm. and, and openness. And I, I treasure that moment. I don't remember his name and he probably would not remember me, but I treasure the quality of conversation and, and disclosure that you can sometimes create with, with a stranger. And then, you know, as you proceed into your life that you've been enriched and in some way transformed because you have just witnessed, which is another element of seeing, you have witnessed another life mm-hmm. in a meaningful way. Yeah, wonderful. It's so great you had that experience. Yeah. You know, the big test of the churches or churches is, is what they do on the ground and, and especially what they do with the poor and how they embrace the poor. That's a... Uh, that, and that came from the mission of her particular order, too, because they particularly serve the poor. Knowing, knowing all that you know today, in a thought experiment, if you, were to, if you were starting again, and you were 25 or 30 or 35, mm-hmm. where would you start today? How would you embark on starting your professional career today? Um, I didn't. I'd start a lot closer to where I ended up. I have a master's degree in international finance that I've not, in terms of content, I've seldom found that of much use. In terms of the process of accomplishing it, that was very useful, but the content isn't. So I'd start out um, closer to uh, sociology, anthropology, psychology, psychiatry, yeah, I, I'd start uh, closer to that uh, than I did. I've noticed as I talk with uh, people who are working on advanced degrees that are in their mid-20s or early 30s that, boy, they sure, they're significantly ahead of where I was at that age because I was spending so much of my time on more technical rational analytic left brain stuff. So that's one thing I do. In other words, you would get faster and sooner and more in a direct way to your passion, to your gift, to your talent, and to the exercise that will enable you to, to express this. Yeah, yeah. I'd, um, I might also free myself a bit from my corporate bounds or boundaries and grab hold of organizations, especially large organizations. I continue to have a passion for that, but let let go of the corporate aspects of that and think more in terms of what do large organizations in the world need. I think that the that the money from the corporate world was really seductive for me, both as an internal person and as an external consultant who relied primarily on the corporate sector for 
income. So now I think hmm, that there's a, I was working more for money than I realized at the time. I thought I was more generous than I was, but the, the dollars were pretty seductive. So I'd, um, if I were starting over, I'd step outside that framework. As valuable as it is in the world, I try to move to a place where I'm being helpful to organizations more than the corporate world, just the corporate world. The contradiction of living, we have to work hard to acquire what will enable us the freedom and the perspective to then recognize that we perhaps don't need so much of what we worked hard for, but if we didn't work hard to accomplish and, mm -hmm. and benefit from what we did, then would we come to, to the same realization? That, that is the conundrum of living. Isn't it? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. I'm so appreciative of what I've gained along the way, you know, and I'd, um, yeah, and how much I've learned who I am, uh, as a person, as a consultant, as a husband, as a father, a grandfather, a friend. Uh, and, and I know that my work has informed me deeply on this, but I also recognize that there's a certain uh, narrowness in me. And maybe that's the necessity of paths that we choose. Um, yeah, you have to narrow down somehow. But yeah, just sitting back and if I were to do it over, I suspect I'd do something like that was just describing. Thank you. I, I appreciate the, the transparency and the, the voice that you are able to offer in, in these comments. Mm. So this, this, Jeff, has been a, a rich conversation. And so as we, as we bring this to landing, what parting wisdom uh, do you uh, wish to offer to people listening to Create New Futures? This will probably come as no surprise because I've said it in so many ways, but, but pay attention to yourself daily. Pay attention to who you are. Pay attention in a ritual fashion, prayerful fashion, meditative fashion. Pay attention to who you are and who you're becoming. Pay attention to who, you, who, what you want to become, regardless of whether you're doing it right now. Attend to that. Build in time to reflect. I find it useful to have, as I've indicated, groups that have supported me in doing that. It's useful to be regularly engaged in reading about it, in listening to podcasts like the one that we're a part of right now. Yeah, find ways to ritualistically attend to who you're becoming. Thank you uh, so very much for uh, your wisdom and your words and your, the contribution that uh, you have made and are making. You're welcome. And, and thank you, Avi, for the good questions that you've asked and, and your reflections along the way. I really appreciate that. Here we are. We've landed part two of this Create New Futures conversation with Jeff Bellman. Now it's your time to take action. Here are a few steps you can take this week. Number one, as Jeff suggested, pay attention to you 
and reflect on who you are becoming. Every day you shape your destiny in small and big ways through what you attract and by what you propel and by those processes, intentions and actions you power and make important. Number two, ask yourself, where and when do I feel energized? Where and when do I feel hopeful about myself, about life and about the world? Life is too precious to allow yourself to be separated from what empowers and enlightens you. And number three, seek to create with your teams those elements that Jeff observed to indicate and promote extraordinary experiences. Compelling purpose, shared leadership, just enough structure, full engagement, embracing differences, unexpected learning, strengthened relationships, and great results. Work to create an extraordinary team to provide people with an experience they will forever seek to emulate as they proceed and evolve in their career and find themselves with new teams in new situations and with new, growing and greater responsibilities. One more thing, you can reach me directly by phone and on email to explore how we can help you and your team create your new future. See you next time.